0: In a world where people are famous for doing nothing, we're here to discover the ordinary individuals who take giant leaps to do something extraordinary.
1: Welcome to Moving Forward. Welcome back to this week's edition of Moving Forward. I am your host, Kristen Nepper, and today I have a very special guest, Matt Grubal. Matt is a father, a husband, an engineer, and most important for tonight, a recovering addict. Matt has spoken to me incredibly beautifully and candidly about his own experiences, and I know that what he has to share this evening is going to make a real impact on our listeners. So Matt, first and foremost, thank you so much for being here
0: thanks for having me
1: so let's go ahead and get started. Um, I described you as a recovering addict. Can you expand upon that and tell me what that means to you and a little bit about what your struggle has been?
0: Sure. Um, we say we reco- recovering addicts because we we've accepted the fact that we live with a disease that's um, not curable but it's treatable so that's why we don't say we're recovered. We are recovering. And what, what that's meant with me is I started using when I was probably 13 or 14 years old and very quickly fell in love. Mm. Um, began to feel complete because of the drug or the, the, the substance that I was taking because that had been lacking in my life. And over the course of my teen years and young adult, you know, it progressed into a situation where I was out of control, my life had become unmanageable, and I was willing to make a change in my life.
1: I want to talk to you a little bit about that because none of this happens in a bubble. It's not that... I think there are a lot of misperceptions about addiction that people are evil or they make bad choices on purpose to isolate themselves or to hurt other people. And none of this happens in a bubble. So you mentioned, you know, that you were looking to be complete. That was lacking from your childhood. So tell us a little bit about that and maybe your childhood experiences. What was the hardest thing that happened to you? Take us back to what that picture was.
0: Sure. Um, you know, when I grew up, I was in an alcoholic family with with a father who was was a drunk. Um, mother was a codependent person and she, you know, she did her best to keep the sanity in our lives. You know, growing up, my my childhood it was a bit of a black and white situation. Um, my father was a drunk, as I'd said. Um, but he didn't start off, you know, we don't start off as you know, rock bottom. I mean, it's a progressive disease, as I mentioned earlier.
1: Absolutely.
0: And, um, you know, I was really young. Um, He came, he was in the army when my sister was born. And when he came home, you know, I think he was experimenting with things. What I, what I first start to remember is by the time I was five years old or so, um, my dad wasn't around a whole lot. And, you know, as a child, I think, you know, you, you need parents that are home. You need to feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself and what started to happen is of course you know my mother would complain at him or they would fight Um, they would you know I mean they try to keep it from us but you know when your parents are upstairs with the door shut and you hear them screaming you know you know as a kid you you have fear and they try to keep us in the dark but we we started to figure out what was really going on and you know, I didn't like the fighting. Um, I didn't like the insecurity that I, that I had felt. And so I started figuring out ways that I could help. And by that, what I mean is I became my dad's alibi. Um, what, I, what I quickly learned is that I saw my dad hide and stuff, and I helped him hide it. Um, my dad would take me to work with him occasionally on a Saturday And we'd stop at the liquor store, and he'd he'd remind me not to tell mom. So I got some real clear messages from my dad that, you know, it's okay to do whatever you want as long as nobody finds out. Wow. (laughs) And, um, you know, I tried to keep the peace, you know, to the extent that, you know, by the time I was seven or eight years old, I remember an occasion where we were away as a family on vacation, which was one of the highlights of the year. You know, we were a family. You know, we were all together, and dad was always there. But... You know, we were unpacking the car and my brother found some of my dad's booze and he's like, I'm going to run and tell mom. And, you know, of course, I wasn't going to let that happen. So I tripped him in the driveway and knocked him down and beat him up. And you know, I got in trouble for what I did. But my whole my whole thing was is I did it out of fear because I wanted peace and I didn't want dad to get caught and. And I, I didn't want to start off our vacation on the wrong foot. You know what I'm saying? So.
1: What strikes me about that is what a large weight on your little tiny shoulders to be the peacekeeper and the one that was in charge of that at the age of five years old. Oh,
0: yeah. Um, you know, in another occasion, I r- real distinctly remember, I, since Dad was never home, I was always helping my mom. You know, I helped her do dishes. I helped her clean the house. I helped her do the yard work. I did all the stuff that husband and wife are supposed to do together. One night in particular, we were we were putting dishes away, and I f- I found a bottle of vodka in the cabinet. And now this was a small bottle of vodka, which was much smaller than the big fist that I was used to seeing. You know, her find for my dad and pouring out. But you know, I was like, Mom, what's this doing here? Because typically, like I said, she would pour out any alcohol in the house, and she's like, Oh, well, that's mine. And. I fell apart because all I saw was the black and white. If you drink, you're like my dad. If you don't drink, you're like my mom. And she was the only thing holding us together as a family. And I thought, this is it. She's gone, too. Um, I came unglued, um, sat down in the kitchen and cried. And eventually she threw it out for me. Um, Wow.
1: And I, Matt and I went to high school together for our listeners out there. And I do remember um, eventually your mom got sick. And, you know, it's funny that you were talking about having a good parent and a bad parent. And I know that she was the good parent. Uh, and I'm using air quotes right now for uh, our listeners because we know that's you know not true. But as children, we do see things in black and white. So can you tell us about what happened next?
0: Sure. OK, so let me just back up real quick. My dad had gotten sober, you know, probably by the time I was 13 years old. And then when, when I was 16, my mom was diagnosed with um, stage three brain cancer, essentially so you know by then I still had no coping skills, so what I did was I, you know I tried to avoid the situation just like I do with everything um, as an addict, what we really do is we we try to create a false world in which we believe we 're in control um, so that 's what I did. I know how to do that, I did it well, and that 's what I continued to do when that happened. so you know I got a little I had some rage that first night when I found out I wanted you know I went called a friend. Got drunk, wanted to go pick a fight. Fortunately, I didn't because I probably would have ended up on the wrong end of that deal. But um, you know, that's how I that's how I cope with my mom, um, her sickness um, throughout the time that she she was sick, and then when she died, um, was to avoid it. I didn't have any normal grieving process. I, you know, I I, I hid from it.
1: Right. I know that addiction takes many forms, and you just hit on something that I think is important to this. You mentioned creating a false world and being in control. So can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with control?
0: That's one I still struggle with, to be honest with you. Um, when, when you're powerless as a child, I believe, and you know, at least I'm speaking for myself, when, when I was powerless as a child, um, I developed that almost alter ego, I would say, in which I felt in control. I mean, to say it was just a coping mechanism is probably an understatement. I mean, it, it was how I lived. I had a false reality. And in that reality, I was, I wouldn't say God, but I was in charge. I, you know, if, if um, a situation wasn't what I wanted it to be, I would quickly alter it in my mind um, or in, you know, just take myself out of the situation altogether so that I could escape the real reality and go back to my own. With alcohol, drugs—I mean, to me, it's the same thing. It's all a drug. It's all a moon-changing, mind-altering substance. That was a great mechanism in which to do that, um, and it worked extremely well for a long time. I—I I enjoyed it. That's why you know I didn't—I didn't start using because I didn't like it. <laughs> I—I right. I enjoyed it. It was the fix. It was the—it was the—the the filler of the void. So I thought um, that I had always felt inside.
1: Understandable.
0: So, yeah. So to, so to say you know your your question was about control yeah it's part of the disease it's part of you know when we we come to the program when we come to surrender we we admit that we're powerless over our disease and our lives are unmanageable and that goes into everything the only way for us to really recover is to genuinely begin to accept that we really aren't in control of anything that we only have ourselves Um, we're powerless not in control of anything um, and that's a huge admission it's a huge freedom to, to, to come to realize that that the world doesn't revolve around me that I'm just part of a greater much greater sub. you know
1: I love that because it applies not just if you're an addict but to any human and that is the one thing I see with my clients and with a lot of people that they don't want to face they have such a strong relationship with certainty, I want to say. So anything that seems uncertain or change or risk p- drives people crazy. They really yeah. want to be in control more than anything. And that is absolutely an illusion.
0: Oh, it's so much an illusion. And it, you're right. It doesn't matter if you're an addict or not. I mean, it's, it's a human character. Yeah. And it's a, it's a flaw. <laughs> it is a flaw. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's a character defect. And, and um, you know, being free, you know, it's a process to let go of that.
1: Uh, Yeah. I think that it's a commitment we have to make every
0: day for real. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned substances, um, narcotics, alcohol, that type of thing. But I know some of our listeners have heard me discuss my, um, I'm an addict as well, but my addiction is love. I'm a recovering love addict. And Matt, I know that you and I have talked a little bit about that. Can you explain how that has manifested itself in your life?
0: Oh, for sure. Um, to me, the disease of addiction isn't even about a substance. I know I've mentioned that because that was, that's where it manifested and was most clear in my life. But, you know, I found myself, um, the disease of addiction to me is just, it's an obsession. It's, it's an obsession of the mind and a compulsion of the body um, to getting the idea that we have something outside of us that's going to make us okay. And then once we start the thought process, we can't stop it until we feel whole. And for me, it was always you know the term is chasing the dragon and it's so real because at first for me when I found that it worked and it temporarily filled that hole at least so I thought Um, so to me it doesn't matter what it is if it's love, if it's money, it's gambling, it's sex, it's anything Um, people find ways of filling the void that can't be filled with anything in, in my opinion other than a spiritual connection with a greater being
1: I agree with you. I love the way you said, you know, we're looking outside of us instead of inside of us. And I wanted to, before we talk a little bit more in depth in that arena of spirituality, I wanted to ask you about your own journey and when the bottom fell out for you and when you were able to really reach that pivotal point where you said enough is enough. I can't do this alone.
0: Sure. Lots of addicts get to the point where we're tired, tired of being tired and for me, that happened long before I got clean. Um, we we struggle with you know the the desire to quit, but also the desire to still use. And for me, some serious events really took place that happened in threes, um, like like we had talked about before. The first real thing was I was engaged to a gal that ended up having an affair with my two childhood best friends um, over the course of a weekend, and shortly you know i guess not shortly um within a within a couple months maybe several months i i had uh gotten arrested for public intox which could have actually been a whole lot worse and then just a few months later after that i ended up getting fired so in the course of about a year i had gone through some pretty significant things that those, none of those I, are minor <laughs> <laughs> well no but you know what, what happened was is I, I i finally realized that you know i what happened is, is after I got fired, I, I got another job, but I couldn't pass a drug test. So, you know, I, I came to the conclusion that if I can't even stay clean long enough to do that, then maybe I need to get some help. So right. so that was really the breaking point for me. Um, I made an appointment with a local rehabilitation center, um, went in to my appointment and spilled my guts. And for the first time in my life, I didn't lie to anybody about anything. It was this great freedom and just pouring my heart out, taking off all the masks and just saying who I was and what I'd done and why I need help. You know, and it it was kind of funny because after all that, the lady looked at me and she said, well, I think we can find an outpatient program that'll work for you. And I fell off my chair because to me, um, I was one of the worst. And I was afraid she was going to say, we need to lock you up. For 90 days or something you know and I was okay with whatever she was gonna say yeah but you know I was terrified after she said that I said no you don't understand I need a bed I need you to put me away because I cannot stay clean on my own I was desperate I had tried it I had failed miserably time and again and I didn't know how to use or stay clean without by myself so so I convinced her um finally she convinced you know she agreed to let me to get a bed i had to go home and come back the next day um, she's like no come back make sure you come back and you know that began my journey um, to where i'm at today and i'm grateful for what happened that day and for everything that's happened since hey moving forward listeners if you're enjoying today's episode consider supporting the podcast you can purchase a copy of the corporate cliches adult coloring book or try out amazon prime or audible using one of my affiliate links which you can find in the write-up for any of the episodes at bmovingforward.com.
1: Can I ask you, so that night before you checked into rehab, first of all, I commend you for being your own addict and knowing your own personal limitations and seeking out help because I think that's the pit that a lot of us go into is I can't get out of here yet. I know I need to, and I just don't have the ladder. I'm not sure how. So you were your own advocate and that's, fantastic. But that night, that one night before you checked into rehab, how did you spend it? What did you do? What was going through your mind?
0: Well, (laughs) I spent a lot of, ways. you know, I went home and, and I, and I contacted my ex fiance and we had, you know, we had been trying to work things out, trying to work through what happened. And, and I told her, you know, I asked her to come over and I sat down with her and told her what I was doing. And I said, you know, we can do this, we can make this work, but you gotta come with me. And she's like, no, I'm not going with you. So, you know, we, we spent the, the next however long, however many hours it was using up everything that I could find in my house. Um, yeah. and then getting rid of all of the paraphernalia and everything that, that would remind me that when I got home, um, what I used to do, um, because I, for me, this was it. I was really going to change and. You know, but at the same time, I was like, "Well, you know, what have I got to lose? I want to just get high one last time."
1: It's what you know. It's what you know. And I think that, as we've mentioned, none of this applies merely to addicts. This repli- applies to all of us as humans. Our habits that we that we get into, you know, they stick, and it takes a lot to o- overcome that and to make changes in the brain and make changes in our life. So,
0: the funny yeah. thing is, is it didn't work. You know, I mean, I. I yeah. couldn't. Die. By then, I, it just it didn't work anymore, and it was time. It was time for the next day to come, and I was, you know, I was beating down the door early to get into rehab, and and um,
1: my life
0: changed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> understandable. Well, you hit on a, a lot of interesting points that I certainly resonate with. Taking off the mask, just how freeing it is to admit that you are at rock bottom and you have nothing else to lose because everything is gone at that point. And I know that um, you have gone through the 12 steps. So can you tell our listeners a little bit, A about the 12 steps and then B how it's transformed your own spirituality?
0: Wow. Sure. Um, The 12 steps are the key to freedom for someone like me. Um, They're, they're written by people just like me for people just like me, people who've been there before me. Um, and know the way out, Um, which is different than like seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist or you know, anything, anything outside of, you know, it's it's a program of empathy. People have been there before us and they know what we're going through and they know how to get out. So step one is talking, talks about um, just admitting that we're powerless over our, our disease and that our lives have become unmanageable because of it. And if you, you know, if you think about that, you could just replace the word disease with whatever struggle any person has. And 12 steps apply to anybody. Yeah, First step is really something that we just first really start to realize the the reality of how powerless we truly were. But what's amazing about the first step is that, you know, there's a dichotomy because we surrender to win. And by admitting powerlessness, we become empowered to do something different. I
1: love how you said that surrender to win, because that's just nonsensical to most of us especially anybody in the power professions lawyer, doctor or Wall Street that right. type of thing a but sign of weakness absolutely because you're depending on an outside source yeah. to empower you rather than internally
0: and what a what a gift it is to, to finally realize that you don't have to do it anymore you don't have to fake it you don't have to do it on your own that you know it's just a gift yeah so the second step is it says we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to our sanity And, you know, we say we came, we came to, we came to believe. It's talking about a process. Um, And that applies in so many ways because, like, we have these, you know, you, you just have some faith. You just step out on a limb and try something different because if you're an addict like me, you only knew how to live one way. So can ep- you
1: explain that to us? I, sorry to interrupt, but for those of you uh, who don't understand, because I think a lot of people, and I know my former father-in-law had talked to me about this and how he struggled because he didn't believe in God, and you say you believe in a process. Can you explain the difference and how you would go about, ex- go about that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, 12 Steps is not about God. It's not about religion. It's a spiritual program, uh, and it's about a process, and it's about learning spiritual principles and how to apply them in your daily life to, to make your life better. Um, because a lot of us had no clue. I mean, so yes, the process of we came, we came to, we came to believe um, in a power greater than ourselves. There's so many powers greater than ourselves. A simple thing could be a teacher. Um, mm-hmm. If I don't know how to read, I can go to a teacher and learn how to read. That's a power greater than myself, restoring me to sanity in some way. Just take any aspect of your life that you find unmanageable. Find the source, the person that can help you, and that's a power greater than you. So it doesn't have to be anything bigger than that. It's just a way to do something and think differently.
1: I love that. I love the example you had given earlier about, you know, if you are a speedster and you cannot drive 60 miles per hour in your car, a policeman can be your process. Even though you might not be happy about it in the moment, he or she will be the one that says, nope, this is what you need to do, and you will be fined because you didn't do it this way.
0: Right. So good point. Yeah, I love
1: that. (laughs) what are the other steps just to summarize and recap
0: well basically what it is it's a process of you know the third step for me is is a huge step and i'd like to share that one
1: yeah
0: is we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of god as we understood him and that means so many things but the the most important thing about it for me was i was raised you know in a dysfunctional family obviously but my mother was a christian um, and so was my dad somewhat, um, at least he tried to be, um, at least lived, lived like he was. But I was raised with this God that I never understood, um, a God that was given to me by people who tried, you know, my, I think they truly had my best interest in mind, but I didn't understand how to process the God they were trying to give me. Um, I felt a lot of shame, I felt the judgment, I felt the fear, I felt the... You know the desire to hide from God. Um, to me, God, God. yeah. To, to me, God wasn't a loving, caring thing. <laughs> he was—he was a judgmental grandpa. So, in NA, we get sponsors, and mine happened to be named Paul. And he taught me a lot about the third step. And one of the most freeing things that he taught me was—he—he um, he got to know me real well, and he, he could see the fear and the lack of understanding that I had. I was agnostic mostly by then and he said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna try something. We're gonna we're gonna give you the, the power to fire the God of your understanding that you had as a child and you get to start over.
1: Wow, what a gift.
0: And yeah, because for me, that wasn't something that you did. I mean that absolutely. was absolutely
1: because you'll be judged and you'll yep. be stricken down. And-
0: yeah, you don't you don't question what God is or who God is or anything about it. I mean you taught just did not have questions. I mean Absolutely. It was considered lack of faith, and lack of faith meant you were going to hell.
1: Absolutely. I think we grew up with the same God because <laughs> yeah. that was my understanding I mean, of God uh, until adulthood as well. Yes.
0: I and mean, so many people have that God and it's like
1: That's why this know- is such an important conversation. Agreed. And that is not what this is about.
0: If, if anybody can get anything from this, that, that's it. Because that has been, the, like I said, the biggest gift of anything. Because what happened was, eventually, once I was like, oh, okay, if you say so. You know, once that, that also was a process, but but it happened. And I put pen to paper, and I sat down, and I told God he was fired. And, you know, the God of my understanding. Um, that's how we word it. We word it that way for a lot of reasons. But um, then I got to write. A job description and at first my description was nothing more than loving caring and greater than myself i am in uh, love with that that's beautiful <laughs> yeah because that's all i could really get with um and and then that began to grow you know i started asking people you know i got the freedom to like question other people and yeah you know, and
1: have an actual I'll- conversation than to just live in <laughs> fear
0: Right, and to you know, even explore other religions and, and practices, and you know, I I ate that up, man. I I started reading books, you know, all kinds of mystic, our books on mysticism, and started meditating and. Gravitating towards a new being that really I could connect with and was inside of me more than outside of me. And, you know, it was a beautiful thing that evolved into something, you know, to where it gave me enough acceptance of the God of my childhood that I became open to it again, you know, because I could come back, you know, and start to see all the similarities that all the religions shared. Yes instead of focusing on what was different and realize that there is there's is valuable information in every one of those religions um or spiritual texts or however you want to you know however you want to phrase it it was a new experience for me to come back and, and experience christianity from a different perspective and you know my my relationship today with the god of my understanding is is still ever changing that's why we say the god of my understanding because we, we don't understand it's going We are mere mortals yeah it's organic it's evolutionary and you know it's part of the process so that's it that's that's how that's what it gave me
1: i love that on so many different levels i think i must have had the same childhood as you in the sense that that was how i felt growing up too and i think a lot of our listeners probably felt that way i've even heard oprah winfrey talk about her relationship with christianity and when she began to read a course of miracles which is a mystical christian text how she was petrified to have the book even in her house because she thought God was going to strike her down and judge her and it's this idea of love versus fear and there's too much in my opinion emphasis on the fear and not enough emphasis on the love and that's what we're all craving and that's what we seek to understand and what really connects us there's no one you know pathway to truth there are many pathways to one universal truth
0: you said that perfectly (laughs)
1: you really did so speaking of connection, um, how what is how has your practice changed? How do you connect to the divine today?
0: Well, um, you know, I mean, I, I can connect with the divine in, in many ways in my car. I mean, in prayer, in meditation, in a group of people or by myself. You know, I love to be in the garden and get my hands dirty and be on that, you know, on that level. I love to run and just you know it does, it doesn't matter where i'm at i don't i don't have to have a practice anymore you know when i started i did i needed guided meditations i needed to sit down in the middle of my living room with candles burning and music playing and incense going and and that's how i learned i mean it it didn't just happen overnight i learned how to do that i practiced and and now i can just i can be in a crowded room with all the noise and chaos going on and just be at peace with my divine, because he's every you know it's everywhere, always. Well, and he's in you. I think yeah, that's exactly how... he's in me trying to get out instead of outside trying to get in. And yeah, that's...
1: and I think that's the most important takeaway because he's in all of us if we just take the time to listen and mm-hmm. to hear. Yeah, definitely. What would you recommend for others that are interested in finding their own? inner power and connecting with the divine on their own?
0: Well, you know, for me, it, it was about finding the right people, um, finding people that had what I want. You know, when I was using, I surrounded myself with people that they had what I want. They had the things that I wanted, or I was seeking for, but I always surrounded my people with people that I thought I was not as bad as because oh, wow. it was, yeah. a, you know, of feeling, you know, justifying what I was doing.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of us do that subconsciously.
0: Yeah, and, and now I I practice doing the opposite. So when I find spiritual people in you know, I mean and they're easy to find. When you find people that just have what you want, you gotta ask how they got it. What did you do to do this? And then you start doing it because that's how it worked for me. That was the only way. I mean that's when I I didn't even know what meditation was when I got to you know, when I got here. Um it wasn't talked about in church because they don't want you to sit still long enough to figure anything out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So that's what I did. I mean, and I recommend just, you know, just take some time and practice it. And for me, I found I found a spiritual guide. Um, I met with her. She, she was at first my therapist. Yeah. And we had such an amazing connection that she became, you know, my sessions with her became, um, we meditated. Um, She balanced my energies. She, you know, she, she was a godsend, no doubt. She, she became a teacher. And there's teachers everywhere. We just have to find them and, and, and be willing to, to be students.
1: Absolutely. I love that. Um, and for our listeners who haven't thought about this or heard this previously, one of the best descriptions I was given uh, regarding meditation, because I think to a lot of people it probably sounds a little woo-woo, a little hippie, but meditation is when you listen to the divine, and prayer is when you speak to the divine. So meditation is uh, the other half of the coin and a really important component of developing your own spirituality. And we'll put some links over on the Vue page for those of you who are interested in learning more about meditation and the process of listening, how to breathe and how to come to your own inner divine space. Well, Matt, if one final question I want to ask, I just glanced down at my notes and I saw it. So, you know, now you have had such a tremendous journey when do you feel the most free today?
0: Well, you know, again, it, I feel free almost always. But I guess, I, you know, I guess when I feel the most free is when I get to share my experience, strength, and hope with someone else that's struggling um, and have that connection and be reminded of the prison that I was in for so long, the self-made prison that I chose a day after day. And being free from that is, you know, once once you experience that, it's, it's hard to not feel free. There are, there are things in my life that give me tons of joy when I walk in the house at night after any day at work and my kids run through the house to greet me. And, you know, they're just, they light up my life. And those are the things that just speak to me is, is these are the freedom. These, this is the gift of my recovery. This is the gift of the life that has happened because of that choice way back when, 15 years ago.
1: Oh, happy anniversary. Yes. You just reached the 15 year mark. I remember that. That's,
0: crazy.
1: Wow. That's wonderful. Um, If if our listeners want to connect with you and learn more about you, are you on social media? Is there a way they can do so?
0: I do have a Facebook page. Yes. and Can you
1: spell your last name for us?
0: Sure. It's G-R-U-B-A-U-G-H.
1: Excellent. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for being here tonight. I know your story is going to help a lot of our listeners.
0: Well, I hope it reaches one person at least.
1: (laughs) Yes, one person is really all it takes. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Did you like this podcast? If so, uh, rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next time, keep moving forward. Sadnam.
0: Now it's time for you to move forward and discover the extraordinary in you. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and BeMovingForward.com. All rights reserved.